Hello and welcome to the Global Voices podcast, your weekly dose of global news in local voices. I'm your host Ameya, speaking from Delhi, India. Each week, insiders from our community share what news matters the most in their communities and how they build their stories out of the local context. First off, we're off to the Caribbean to hear about the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's visit. Joining me now is one of our very uh, frequent contributors uh, from the Caribbean. Say hello to Emma. Hi, Emma. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Emma. Hi, Emma. So can you tell us where you're, uh, where you, where you're from? Um, I'm based in Kingston, Jamaica. You might be able to tell from a bit of my accent that I was born in the UK, but I have lived here for 35 years now, so in Kingston. All right. So the reason I wanted you to talk to us today was because uh, we are seeing right now in the Caribbean that there's a royal tour on with uh, Prince William and uh, Princess Kate or Kate Middleton. I'm not sure how to refer to her. Uh, but apparently it's not getting quite the, the excited reception they, were, uh, they would be hoping for. That is true. Um, it has been... Uh... Well, there's been a, quite a media storm about it in the in uh, both local and and overseas media, especially the British media. So what what's happening? So how are they being received, say, in Jamaica? It's been it's been a mixture. There is a group called uh, the Advocates, which which are basically a very uh, a sort of loose non uh, non partisan group. Which is cam- which is campaigning on various human rights and government governance issues, and they um, produced a letter signed by a hundred Jamaicans and some sort of very well known Jamaican artists, um, lawyers, um, sort of high 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 profile figures which basically was saying that, you know, they don't really, they don't welcome the royal couple who were here for three days um, this week. They said, uh, we see no, cel- no reason to celebrate 70 years of the accession of your grandmother to the British throne. They also said in the letter, the advocate said, we will, however, celebrate 60 years of freedom from British colonial domination. Um, <laughs> Because we uh, were celebrating our independence, 60th year of independence this year. They went one step further. They also added a list of 60, as it's the 60th, reasons why uh, they were protesting against the visit and calling for reparations and calling for an apology at least an apology. <laughs> mm. So the 60 reasons were like very well-documented atrocities and terrible things that happened under, under slavery. It all resonated with, with, with many Jamaicans, though, and there was a protest outside the British High Commission on the morning of the couple's arrival, which was Tuesday. Is this something that we're seeing across the Caribbean? Are other countries uh, saying similar things? Well, in Belize, there was there was a slight hitch in their schedule because an indigenous indigenous group objected to a visit, basically, and protested. So they they rescheduled that, and they didn't go to visit them. 
Um, but I, I think that went fairly quietly apart from that. But, but even before the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, as they're called, arrived, they must have realised that they were going to get a sort of like a kind of mixed reception. They then went down to Trenchtown, which, as you know, is the um, uh, probably know is where Bob Marley grew up. And there's a place called okay. the Culture Yard there, which is at the actual place where he where he used to live. And um, it's, uh, it's a very, um, well, quite an impoverished, sadly, um, neighborhood uh, still after all these years. And uh, they went down there, had a little football match with some, some football stars. And, um, and there was a big chain link fence, which I, I actually know that, that place quite well personally. And, it was obviously a very new chain link fence that had been put up all around the football ground. So all the people of Trenchtown were on one side of the fence and the royalties were on the other, which which was not a good. I saw some pictures and it was like a good photo op. Because you have all these brown faces and bodies and fingers yeah. reaching through the reaching. fence. And then exactly. there's, there's the Duchess of Cambridge, like, extending her gloved hand mm. as to say, you may... That's right. It was you may touch me. Very bad optics, <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it was. But, but of course, other people said, oh, but there was such a big crowd and everybody loved it and they were all excited. But, I mean, quite frankly, if you live in Trenchtown, it's a pretty pretty grim life at times and it was obviously a big event and a big occasion of course for the community so you can't get away from that I mean and also all us uh, I want to say post-colonial governments we like to do these things because I know Mm. when I think it was uh, what's her name Ivanka Trump came to Hyderabad which is my hometown in India Uh, they actually rounded up all the homeless people and the beggars and shipped them out of uh, town Yes, we have had that experience too. So one thing, one thing that did occur to me was uh, quite recently, wasn't it six months ago that uh, Barbados officially voted themselves kind of out of the purview of the royal family? Was was am I remembering this wrong? There was a lot of discussion about that here, and people were saying, "Well, they're doing it, and why haven't we made a move yet?" You know, but in fact, this has been a topic. Oh, forever that politicians have been uh, discussing various administrations and never really got to grips with it. Um, that is sort of waving goodbye to the Queen. They talk about it and everybody says, oh, that would be good. But um, but it, it hasn't happened. I also think it's very interesting timing, uh, given the, the mm. Russian invasion of Ukraine and the conversation yeah. that's emerging this time is also about Eurocentricism and how it's time to move yes. on from a lot of these colonial relationships. Anyway, Emma, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and I hope we'll have you back again soon. Emma also told me that, despite the protests, many Jamaicans are ambivalent about the monarchy. Unlike in Barbados, Jamaica would need a referendum to step away from the British monarchy and, as the Jamaican government mulls over the next steps, ambivalence from a potential silent majority might show itself if and when a referendum is held. Now we're headed back across the globe to the island nation of Sri Lanka, and our South Asia editor tells us about the crippling financial crisis in the country. Hi, Razwan, welcome back. Hi, everyone. This is Rejwan from Dhaka, Bangladesh. 
So Rezwan, something very um, unexpected happened in Sri Lanka this week. Uh, there's no exams because there's no paper? Yes. Uh, first, I saw this news and I was uh, trying to get a sense of what's going on. So uh, apparently this made headlines everywhere that uh, the final term examinations of schools in the Western province of Sri Lanka was uh, postponed due to a shortage of paper and other materials required to prepare the examination papers. So uh, I started digging uh, what happened and then I found out that uh, there are more to this story. So for example, the paper shortage uh, also affected the printing and issuing of electricity bills. And this is not the only uh, issue Sri Lanka was facing. So uh, in the past few months, there were reports of widespread shortages, uh, such as like gas, <coughs> medicine, or even car parts. And now, of course, fuel, and which was uh, uh, also triggered by the uh, Russian in invasion in Ukraine, you know, the international fuel prices uh, have gone up. So what happened is that like Sri Lanka is unable to import from abroad uh, because of their foreign currency shortage. And given that they're an island nation, I imagine they have to import a lot of things. Yes, they do. And uh, uh, like food stuff and uh, many necessary things like the milk powder has uh, gone up by uh, 200% the price of milk powder and uh, actually crazy. The, yeah the food inflation rose above like 25% in february 2022 there were more uh, to this story because uh, due to the fuel shortage uh, sri lanka has introduced this uh, uh, rolling blackouts like and uh, uh, in uh, late February and by early March, the blackouts uh, in some portions were up to like uh, five to seven hours, which is crazy. Like, the, wow. and uh, like people are reacting like, hey, what's happening and how we're going to sustain and that sort of things. And actually there are protests happening in Sri Lanka, although like uh, the news is not there so much, but, uh, uh, people are protesting this and and actually this is uh, not only this government's fault actually uh, this started the, the uh, because Sri Lanka is uh, severely in debt like they took a lot of uh, 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 loans from uh, banks uh, earlier they used to uh, uh, take loans from like uh, institution like IMF, uh, which had like uh, uh, relaxed repayment uh, schedules. But yeah. uh, if you if you take commercial loans, then your repayment schedule is shorter, like you have to pay back uh, within a, a period of time. But like now they're in crisis and they also face a lot of loans to be paid, repaid, like 7 billion in 2022. So that's a lot. And like the government is really uh, struggling to Seven yeah, billion to, US dollars or yes. seven billion Sri Lanka rupees. Seven billion no, no, US yeah. dollars they have to pay this year. And yeah. that 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 is a staggering amount. Uh, because you know, as far as I remember, their GDP is in the region of eighty billion dollars a year. It's ridiculous. That's a that's a ridiculous amount. Who are the who are the creditors? I mean, so it's it's not the IMF. So is it like is it like just regular private banks or is it like other countries or what's the situation? 
uh, mostly like Chinese loans because they took a lot of uh, uh, loans from China. So what could be some of the what could be some of the options that Sri Lanka has now because people are starving, they don't have mm-hmm. fuel, they don't have like basic necessities, and they don't have money. I don't know the easy solution to this, but the country has uh, uh, sought uh, help from IMF. IMF can give them uh, further loans so that that immediate requirements are met, and they have a uh, probably a long term plan to get them out of this trouble. Yeah. And from what I understand, the the potential problem with the IMF is the fact that IMF loans come with certain uh, governance rules, like you have to behave a certain way. (laughs) That might be something that the government is not uh, prepared to do. Yeah, already the government government is in pressure because uh, the opposition is uh, protesting and uh, uh, so there, there, there is this pressure, but you know, a political instability is uh, not a solution in this, uh, uh, is, is kind of uh, further aggravate uh, the situation. Okay, well, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see what comes. Thanks so much, Razan. To finish up, I'm joined by two wonderful women who wrote an important story about the situations that disabled Latina women found themselves in because of the pandemic. Natalie and Fabiola wrote the story, supported by the International Center for Journalists, in answer to a call for projects that explored the impacts of the pandemic. Joining me now are two of our uh, Latin American contributors, uh, Natalie and Fabiola. Say hi, chicas. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yes. Hi, Amelia. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, can you uh, tell us which one is which and uh, where both of you are based? I'm Natalie Van Hooser. I'm based in Reno, Nevada. I am Fabiola Gutierrez. I am from Bolivia and I'm based, based in Valencia, España. This week, we published a story that uh, Natalie and Fabiola wrote about uh, Latinas with disabilities and the, some of the difficulties they faced over the past two years in the pandemic. Uh, and it was a really beautiful story. Uh, so I'm going to shut up and let them tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let me open by asking you how you came up with the uh, idea of doing this story. So Fabiola and I got on a call and we start, started brainstorming what we'd like to do together. And that's where the idea for this project came from. It's a facilitated conversation style piece. The idea is we facilitated conversations between Latina women with disabilities who live in different parts of the global North and the global South. So in this case, it was Latin America as the global South. And then the U S and Spain were the global North and participants were matched where one was in the global South and the other was in the global North. The facilitated conversation format was something that we were inspired by through some work I have been doing recently with StoryCorps, which is a nonprofit here in the U S And with a project they have called One Small Step, I have been facilitating conversations between people with different political ideologies. So I took the inspiration from how to sit down two people with differences and get them to open up to each other. I took that idea and we, you know, molded it to this project where we were having women with different disabilities who live in different places talking to each other. So Fabiola, um, I'm going to ask you this now. So tell me some of the stories that came out of this. We started to approach to a lot of women and for some of them it was difficult to participate. Uh, for example, the schedule and also like having the equipment, having the time. 
etc. So we ended up with a list of six women and they are very unique and they have like their very own particular story. And also as a woman with disability, they have um, built their identity around that. So we have uh, one person from Bolivia. Uh, she's uh, uh, Natalie, how do you say this? This is a yeah, short she, person. Yeah, she's a woman of short stature. Short stature, thanks. And then we have a woman who is autistic from Mexico. Uh, we have a deaf woman from Chile. Uh, we have a woman from Costa Rica who is blind and also another a blind person who is from Colombia. These both live in Spain. One of them uses a cane to move around the world and the other one uses a dog uh, whose name is Raquel. <laughs> And then we have uh, the last person, which is a woman who uses a wheelchair um, in Republica Dominicana, in Dominican Republic. So what are some of the problems these women faced in the pandemic that were extra? Sure, I can list a few and then Fabi um, will, can share some more. But overall, what we really noticed was that for a lot of these women, they were sharing that the the barriers and the difficulties that they had prior to the pandemic, as far as uh, resources, you know, that are from you know the state or their community or their government, those types of resources that they didn't have before or the support that they didn't have prior to the pandemic was exacerbated by the pandemic. So, even in cases like you know how independent they were able to be as far as transportation getting around town when the pandemic you know restricted transportation and things like that they saw that the independence that they had worked very hard to achieve was reduced in different ways and then uh, there was this another aspect that is how the pandemic um, means new challenges and also means uh, there are some things like some concepts that have to be uh, renewed or have to be like at least uh, questioned about, for example, one of our interviewees talked about accessibility. Uh, usually accessibility means uh, like there, um, there have to be, for example, like uh, wide doors for them to enter or bathrooms that are adapted to their needs. Uh, but she was saying that uh, there is now, there, or there should be now a new concept of accessibility, uh, meaning that there should, like the ideal thing should be um, like free COVID spaces, because she was saying now for me is very dangerous to go out. She has long COVID. And she was saying that it was now for her very dangerous to go out because she can uh, get COVID and uh, because of her uh, immune system is compromised. So uh, I think that is like one of the new things, you know, it's not only now about infrastructure, but also about how safe is a place for them to breathe in that space. What about uh, things like access to vaccination 
or you know regular medical checkups and stuff like that which was already difficult for perfectly healthy people uh, who didn't have any other you know who are not already struggling with a inaccessible society was it harder worse did, did they get erased with the response to the pandemic we really did ask about the the vaccination sites and what these women ended up doing was really advocating for themselves in order to try to improve the vaccination process for themselves and for others. So a couple anecdotes, one from the Dominican Republic, we interviewed a, a woman named Cristina Francisco, and she, along with other advocates in the, the disability community in the Dominican Republic, were able to to call for and push for more access, accessible vaccination sites, building off the fact that they had not had access to other pandemic resources. So by the time vaccinations were available, she said that they did ha- were given preference and it was much easier for them to get in and get their vaccine than earlier in the pandemic. Um, in the US, uh, our other interviewee, Pamela Molina, is deaf and she requested an interpreter ahead of time so that a sign language interpreter so that she would be able to ask questions on the spot and then when she got there there was not an interpreter available so she had to advocate for herself to have an interpreter brought in via video so she could be comfortable ask her questions during the the vaccination process so these women have been working to improve the situation for themselves and for others certainly looks like it doesn't happen if you don't ask for it. And if you're not uh, already used to this, I imagine over years of, of trying to demand space in, in society that you have learned that you have to anticipate these things and call ahead and plan ahead and think ahead and advocate. Do they feel, does anyone feel like it might actually make an effect? It might actually have some sort of lasting effect or change the way that people approach and approach disability when they're preparing for crises governments i guess not people uh, in terms of like state policies we haven't heard of them if there are like very lasting changes or a lot of this but uh, four out of the six we interview we inter- interviewed are advocates for a long time now so i think they will keep pushing to get some to get changes as they have been doing pretty much the most part of their lives Besides what Natalie told about vaccines, there were some cases where getting access to health attention was kind of hard. Uh, For some of them, even like in the global north, this woman received her medical appointment, was rescheduled three times. And this sounds like little, (laughs) but each one of the reschedules was six months. So she was waiting when when she was interviewed. Uh, she was waiting for more than a year and a half by that time to get a, to get a neurological attention. And then uh, there was uh, also this another person in Mexico who lost her turn to get vaccinated because people with disabilities and people that have like some base disease were not prioritized in the vaccination process. So for the time her turn, for the time it was her turn to get vaccinated, she was already uh, too sick of uh, other uh, diseases she, she lives with. So she couldn't get her second vaccine. 
the six of them did agree that there is like the need of a special processes for people with disabilities in emergency situations. And that is even in, in the law that uh, has been ratified by almost 200 countries. So there is a thing about disability and emergencies. You know, it's also like women and old people usually as without emergencies, <laughs> we, are, we are excluded. And so when there are emergencies, we're even more excluded. Yeah. I mean, it's the intersection of women and disability, right? Because that's two secondary status things. Well, I'm really glad uh, that that the, that you chose this project and that these, these stories are going to be heard wherever they get heard um, through your work. Um, thank you so much. And thank you for making time to come on the podcast. That's all we have time for today. You've been listening to the Global Voices podcast, your weekly dose of global news and local voices. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends about us. Global Voices is an international, multilingual, primarily volunteer community of writers, translators, academics, and human rights activists. Our multilingual newsroom team reports on people whose voices and experiences are rarely seen in mainstream media. To find out more, go to globalvoices.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. The music in this podcast is from the track Voyage by Nick Markton from our extended Global Voices community. Thank you for listening.